Even if you're not a clinician, you probably understand that clinical trials are used to validate the effectiveness of new healthcare technologies. But how can technology be used to actually make clinical trials themselves more effective? Hello and welcome to The Evidence Space, a podcast produced by the Institution of Engineering Technology, which brings you conversations with leaders from health, care and life sciences. I'm your host, Dr. Peter Bannister, and in this episode, we're going to be welcoming back Dr. Adam Hill from OnCommune and Jeff Ventimiglia from Medidata Solutions to continue to talk about the role of technology in delivering clinical trials. So let's pick up where we left off. You've identified a biomarker, which for our general engineering audience is a physical or physiological characteristics that we can evidence with some kind of test. Then you've used that biomarker to group or stratify your patients so that you're able to identify a very specific group or population of patients that you expect to exhibit the kind of effect you're looking to measure in your clinical trial. What sources of biomarkers are there out there that would allow people to find potential participants outside of the centers of excellence we've already talked about? Yeah, I mean, if you really think about it, we, you know, uh, we use biomarkers a lot. And if we kind of bring this back to clinical research, we're using biomarkers a lot more in what we are terming, you know, personalized medicine. I'm really focused on, you know, the treatment for that patient. Um, But what that means is we have to have a regular and easy way to test for those biomarkers, right? So you may have a... uh, Um, you know, a screening for a clinical trial that requires a pretty rare genetic mutation or variant, um, or you may have a, uh, you know, an an imaging biomarker that requires that, you know, a patient who may normally have not gotten an MRI or a CT scan is now coming in the door and getting that before you enroll those patients into this. So um, biomarkers are becoming really more prevalent in the way that we are running trials because we want to treat them, but it's also making it more complex and a little bit harder for us to, uh, um, you know, to to enroll those patients and, and get them in the study. And that's why we need to expand that, right? I, I think that's where when you talk about the devices, the sensors, all of those are biomarkers, right? And if we truly want to get, you know, personalized medicine to that kind of futuristic sci-fi area that I know that we all want to get to, you know, we're going to have to lay that groundwork of making sure that, you know, we are doing panels, um, you know, for genetic testing every time a patient walks in the door. Uh, we are having easy, um, you know, imaging and, and, and powerful AI software that sits on that uh, to be able to, um, to be able to identify those patients. And that's where, you know, technology really has come into play, right? We need these new, um, you know, AI, machine learning, deep learning type solutions that can go in and um, and comb through all of this data to be able to pinpoint those biomarkers in a much easier way. So I think not only will you, you see those be introduced, but we're going to start to see a lot more clinical trials that introduce AI and deep learning and, and different ways to identify patients. Jeff, I'd like to come back to you in a moment about the challenges of patient recruitment, which you both brought up from different angles. But first, Adam, something you mentioned is the phrase stickiness. Once you've managed to recruit someone who's a fit for your trial, how do you make sure they stick with it through to the end? Given your background as a clinician, how can technology help keep people contributing to clinical trials? And what benefits as a patient should you expect from being part of a clinical trial, potentially for a long time? Fundamentally, trials um, uh, win or die based on 
um, the, 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 the team managing um, that trial in the various different um, trial centres. So, so what can we do to enable that, um, that team? Well, um, it's, I think the simplest opportunity is to continue to develop um, uh, um, applications, software applications um, that engage with patients um, over, over the course of a trial and allow them to, to input into um, that and, and respond to that input. It may be as simple as inputting, um, uh, inputting symptoms in a rheumatoid arthritis um, trial on a daily basis um, and receiving some feedback um, from, from the, trial, the trial team um, as those symptoms wax and wane as they, as, they, um, as they often do. I think that's probably the simplest and most effective way um, of retaining patients on trials. And of course, you mentioned the idea that in many clinical trials, some number of the patients won't actually receive the treatment. The idea is that it might be a blinded study and until the trial is over, the patient won't know whether they were one of the ones who received the new treatment or a placebo, which could be as relevant to a digital device as to a therapeutic or a pharmaceutical. Jeff, what with MediData being charged with supporting the delivery of so many trials globally and what you've learned over the last few months with COVID, how have you managed to augment or to some degree replicate the face-to-face -face value that Adam talked about when almost everyone now is interacting on Zoom? Yep. And so, I mean, I, I'm gonna, I do want to bring up two points about this because I think that dropout rates are extremely important for us to, to think about. And so I think the the first thing is really, and this is, is something we are actively driving on a day-to-day -day basis, is you want to start to engage with that patient um, through technology on a more day-to-day -day basis, right? Um, you know, again, we, we are in a, uh, you know, a half-century-old industry that hasn't changed a lot, right? And we are going to have to break some of those paradigms um, by pushing out technology that allows patients to interact um, with their trial on a more day-to-day -day basis, whether that's through, um, you know, a tablet, their phone, uh, sensors, all of those things. Um, and so we are really pushing that out, providing more patient portals, providing more interactivity um, through those, right? So that you can do questionnaires, you can have daily updates um, with, your, with your trial and stay engaged, even though you're not necessarily seeing um, a research coordinator or a research nurse um, once a month, right? And our expectation is, is that, um, you know, that this will be accelerated by what's going on with the pandemic because regulatory agencies are actually looking for this type of, of work. The one other piece that I'll bring up that I don't think we talk about enough in our industry about why we don't keep patients engaged is that a lot of times when we talk to patients about um, loss of interest or, or just, you know, their not wanting to do the follow-up work, we hear over and over again that patients never hear what actually happened in their study. You know, the majority of patients do not know what company they're, they're, uh, they're getting a treatment from. They may not, you know, they, they may see the fine print in their informed consent, but they're never understanding what happened to that drug. What, what were they in that trial, right? Um, and so one of the other things that we're working on is making sure that we're creating portals with our sponsors to, to allow for the publishing of those results. Um, because we need to be able to put that data back into the patient's hands. You know, we have asked them to do, uh, you know, something very huge, which is put their health at, at risk for us to test something um, and to not be able to follow up and give them the results and help them understand what happened in that study is, I think, a big myth. And that's, again, where we want to use technology 
to, to deliver those results back out, allow for those patients to truly feel like they had benefited um, in that trial and see how they, they that role that they played. So those are two areas of the technology development that, that metadata is actually working on as we speak. I think the first thing that someone who's not well-versed in this space thinks of about clinical trials is that they're just for new drugs. Next, there might be an awareness about how long it takes in any global environment to recruit patients for trials. And then the costs that arise, as well as the impact that that cost has on the actual cost of the device or the treatment that's being tested. You talked earlier about how the clinical trial presents a necessary and a unique opportunity to test out your hypothesis in complicated systems in people with all the variability that this entails. But is there a role for data to help address the challenges around recruitment, particularly when we're starting to look for increasingly rare and sensitive effects in people? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that Adam said that is, was very important is that he's never heard of a patient who didn't want spoken about it properly, who didn't want to be in the trial. What you commonly hear, though, is that patients never hear about a trial, right? Because you may have walked into a hospital that is not a site for that clinical research, um, you know, study. Uh, we do hear oftentimes of, uh, of, of patients going out and kind of combing through, you know, uh, different, um, you know, uh, Medra CT over or, or UDREC CT over in uh, in the, in the in Europe or clinicaltrials.gov over here in the U.S. to go find them trials. But to be honest, most physicians, most patients don't ever even hear about the trial that they need to be on if they weren't, um, you know, proactively reached out to. And, and that's where I think this is so important, Peter, is that, again, we have to find a way to comb through that underlying data to be able to go out and find those complex patients. Um, we need to be able to look through all of those genetic biomarkers and be able to reach out to those patients to understand, you know, if they're interested in the clinical research trial. Um, and we do see that across the industry where we're seeing a lot of laboratory customers, uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, genetic testing companies that are starting to jump into this, um, you know, this area to be able to take that data and provide those patients another opportunity, right? Because if you are trying to treat a rare disease, um, you know, or a rare patient population, it's most likely because what's out there in terms of standard of care is not working for them. Um, and it's probably a smaller population. So uh, again, we can't rely on the, I walked in the front door um, approach to, uh, to recruitment. That, that data is going to have to be mined across multiple, you know, data types. Uh, sensors, genetic uh, panels, uh, you know, doctors visited in the EHRs, whatever it is, um, to be able to come up with a, a pathway to uh, identify those patients, have their doctors reach out to them and bring them in for those studies. So, um, but I think that takes a level of, of data standardization and harmonization that we're not quite to yet, right? I think we have um, multiple data types, uh, I know in the uh, in the UK where you guys are right now, you have a much cleaner uh, technology solution for capturing EHR data at hospitals. But within the United States, we have we have multiple vendors across the, the industry. It makes interoperability very hard. It makes uh, you know total population uh, tracking of patients much harder. And I think we really need to start thinking as a as an industry, how do we work together to make these these data. Uh, easier to use, more interoperable, more harmonized so that we can reach out to these patients and, and, and actually give them the treatments that they need. That's great. 
And I mean, Adam, the OnCommune trial as an example has been a hugely significant undertaking as an international set of trials. What kind of challenges have you faced in terms of recruitment? And how have you found ways of overcoming those to get to the kind of numbers of patients you need to demonstrate the efficacy of your diagnostic? Yeah, thank you, Peter. The, the, um, one of the frontiers, I think, in trials recruitment is, um, is accessing patients that don't today believe themselves to be patients. Um, it's, it's well recognised that the earlier that you can intervene in the course of a disease, um, the more likely your asset, whether it's a drug or a device, um, is, is going to be efficacious and effective. Um, the challenge being, of course, that in many cases, and um, uh, in, in, the, in the case of the ECLS study, which I'll come on to in a moment, it was, it was lung cancer, which typically um, uh, presents very, very late. And diseases are picked up at a stage where simply you aren't able to intervene um, early enough for those, those therapies to have significant benefit. So um, in the case of ECLS, which is the, the largest randomized study of a blood biomarker for cancer detection in the world, um, reported as two-year follow-up um, in a peer-reviewed journal only two weeks ago, um, albeit um, um, presented the early days on a podium in September last year. Um, the, the recruitment approach um, was, was twofold. Um, uh, firstly, GPs reached out to those people on their register that they hadn't seen for some time um, that were smokers. And smoking, of course, um, is um, the um, biggest determinant of, um, of, of lung cancer. And then secondly, there was a, a mass media campaign driven by a popular figure. In this case, it was Sir, um, uh, Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, who, who encourage people to turn up at their GPs and participate in, in a lung cancer screening study. And, and both of those approaches were incredibly um, successful. We, um, we, uh, we recruited just over 18,000 um, patients into the screening um, uh, prior, to, prior to the study. 12,210 patients met the criteria. Um, and every single one of those patients was followed up over a um, over a two-year period. In fact, between the second and the third year, we lost our first patient, um, uh, and that patient had moved um, to, to Australia and so um, was lost, lost to follow-up. Um, but, but an incredibly successful um, campaign. Now, um, the, the greatest challenge um, here, um, beyond those patients not believing themselves to be patients, and therefore susceptible to lung cancer and needing to see a doctor, um, for that disease, is, is that many of those patients, um, in fact, the, the majority of um, lung cancer cases are found in the lowest socioeconomic groups. Um, and we know that those groups um, don't tend to um, see their clinician quite as frequently, and they don't tend to participate in clinical trials. Um, so, so reaching those hard-to-reach groups um, often requires some out-of-the-box out of thinking. This is a really great contemporaneous example. Thank you very much. What we're hearing clearly supports the idea that clinical trials in many cases can take a long time. And of course, there's a risk that they might ultimately show that your device or your therapeutic doesn't work. So to try and mitigate that risk, can you go into a clinical trial with anything less than a finished article? And if you do, can you still use those results later on when you finish developing your device? Maybe I'll jump in before Jeff does, um, uh, because I've got the least maybe to say on this um, on this topic. I think very traditionally, um, clinical trials have been um, developed to meet the requirements of a regulator. 
Um, and so it's very important you've gone beyond your, you know, your target product profile. You have a device um, uh, that has the requisite um, documentation um, to to enter into uh, into 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 a into a clinical trial. I think more more recently, um, uh, the the way in which we develop trials has changed, um, and is changing. Um, and there are a number of different approaches that would allow you to evolve um, uh, uh, a device throughout um, throughout the clinical trial um, itself. Um, a platform study, for example, allows you um, to change a number of different variables um, as you go. That is not, however, for the faint-hearted, as you increase um, the number of patients required in order to be statistically significant, and you increase often um, the number of arms that um, that you're running um, running in a in a in a, in a clinical a clinical trial, but but more traditionally, you have um, you have a, um, a finished product um, uh, that you're you're trialing at um, at the point at which you start engaging patients or recruiting patients into a study. Yeah, and I think I, I I probably mentioned earlier that each of these goes through you know a different pathway. So I mean, I think if you're if you're talking about uh, you know a therapy um, or uh, you know implantable device or something that's going to to be obviously used or by the patient, then yes, you, you need a finished product. I think if you're you know Peter, probably more to your point, talking about startups, talking about more of like the software introduction into uh, into clinical re research um, and when that may touch upon. Um, you know, in the U.S., Part 11 compliancy or, or HIPAA or GDPR over, um, you know, in the U.K., um, it depends on which piece of that, that software you're really talking about, right? If you're talking about core diagnostics, core algorithms um, that you're really working on, then obviously, yes, uh, we, we need a, a final solution because, you know, for a scientific experience to be properly run, we need it to be properly controlled. Um, now, what I can tell you is, uh, you know, I, you don't have to go out and worry about the UI, the design, the uh, the, the bells and whistles and, and worry that if I don't have something more than an MVP, um, you know, that I, I'm going to have to go through this entire process over again. There are ways to introduce those to the regulatory agency, uh, where as long as you're not changing, again, the core diagnostic piece of that software, that you are able to um, to produce versions, to update your software, to be able to push that out into the into the world. Um, but what I will tell you from from working in this industry, um, you know, software, whether it's regulatory approved or, or validated for end users, is that what I have noticed over the past 15 years is that we are no longer living in a world where you can just push the you know the the piece of software out, right? We live in a world now where everybody is connected to technology. They have their phones, they have their tablets, they have Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon. They are used to what good technology looks like and they have become to expect that in their, in their world. So while you may be thinking about looking at the core algorithms and really focusing on that piece, if you want to really drive your product out there and have good uptick, it, it's really important that you have that, that design, that ease of use, that interoperability, all of those things that we have come to expect from our platforms on a day-to-day -day basis um, for your end users, because it, it is the norm now. It is the expectation in, in the market out there. That's great. So we're hearing that if you can understand exactly what requirements exist and what particular characteristic of the device you're testing at any given time, there may be an opportunity to modify the device later on. But if you do, 
then you need to consider what the changes you've made might mean in terms of additional testing. And nonetheless, when you come to consider patient interaction, which has been said throughout, is a really critical part of the clinical trials process, the bar there is set pretty high. So you need to consider what influence the change you're making may have on the way the device is used and the kind of data or therapeutic effect that it's able to produce. So as we look to wrap up, are there any topics that you feel we've badly paid lip service to that you'd like to spend a few minutes discussing? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if I can just point out, because again, this is this the field, one of the pieces of technology that we don't spend too much time talking about is for those, we, we talked about research coordinators, we talked about, you know, principal investigators, but um, it's not just the patient using those, those pieces of software too. Um, you know, we have to really think about all of the, the support infrastructure that goes around clinical research and the technology um, that is, is driving those, uh, those trials. And so, you know, it's not just enough, I think, to think about how will the patient interact in it. We have to have that holistic view, right? Because we need to be able to have the patient use the tool. We need to have the research coordinators or the principal investigators that are able to, um, to look at that data, interpret that data. We have our uh, sponsors or different clinical research organizations that are running these trials who need to collate that data, who need to pull it all together. So, you know, we, we can't just sit back and think that I can come up with a cool fancy app for a patient. We need to really be thinking of the end-to-end -end solution that really, you know, drives us from patient input all the way to, you know, trial submission. And it's important, again, to kind of have that underlying thought process of how that data is going to be harmonized and flows from each of those end users to make sure that you know you're really getting the most out of it and that's why you'll see um, and you'll hear companies like mine talk about unified platforms and, and moving to a more SaaS platform-based technology approach so that all of our users can kind of interact in their different ways in that platform across the clinical trials. Adam, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of The Evidence Space. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Peter. It's been a pleasure. On this latest episode of The Evidence Space, we've taken a deep dive into the subject of clinical trials, which are not only needed to validate new healthcare technologies, but can actually be enhanced and delivered by technology itself. We've understood that for a clinical trial, it's necessary to identify patients who can take part in the trial as volunteers, known as recruitment. But even once you've done this, it can be a challenge to keep the patients properly engaged with the trial for the time it takes to complete the study. We've heard how data, including biomarkers and other diagnostic test results, can be used to identify, recruit and retain patients for the duration of these clinical trials. And this is all essential to ensure that we get high quality data out of these trials, which can then go on to demonstrate that new technologies and treatments are effective safe and also bring a global health economic benefit. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Evidence Space. If you have any feedback or suggestions for new episodes or guests, please do get in touch with us and thank you very much for listening.